You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline High. Let's go straight to some of the key takeaways from those very hearings. Bloomberg's Shanali Basak has been standing by also on Capitol Hill. And Shanali, the takeaways you think in terms of actually approaching Basel 3 endgame? Listen, on one hand, the lawmakers, some of them have heard their cry. They heard the bank CEO's case and they believed it in some cases. But, you know, they would have to go to the Federal Reserve and the FDIC and other regulators and make it sure that those regulators waited to implement these rules and really push this off. Now, on the other hand, one senator I spoke to of particular interest was J.D. Vance, the Ohio Republican, who you may remember was a venture capitalist himself. I asked him whether the private credit industry, the private funds industry, would also face their own regulation. And he said, that is very highly likely. He could see things going that way. So this push-pull between the banking industry and their biggest clients are going to be very highly watched because, of course, we know that, uh, of course, the meeting's ending right now and you're seeing the banks in just a few minutes here all about to walk behind me as well, probably, Caroline. But, you know, you do see this push-pull between yeah. the biggest banks and their biggest clients at this point in time given the tension behind the capital rules. We're a tech show. Let's talk about AI, the questioning there, crypto, the questioning there. What did you take away from some of the thoughts from Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren in particular? Listen, the feelings that have been left over from the crypto crash and how many millions of Americans have lost money and the Binance settlement that we've seen so recently, Elizabeth Warren agreeing with big banks and their biggest CEOs never happens this way. But yet you have them agreeing that the crypto companies should be facing the anti-money laundering rules that these banks have had to face for decades. And so that was some place that they faced agreement. Elizabeth Warren has turned her attention from the bank CEOs over to the crypto industry that has been made pretty clear today. And the rest of the Senators are very, very worried, not just about crypto, but about AI. And whether you are in uh, an area where you're calling a bank and you don't know whether you're speaking to artificial intelligence or a person with your personal financial information. Shanali, we're going to let you start running after some of those bank CEOs and indeed some of those senators who just seen more behind you. We thank you so much, Shanali Basak. Meanwhile, let's talk the democratization of finance, retail access to certain assets in particular. Now, retail investors on Publix brokerage will be able to buy slices of corporate bonds, just like they do with stocks, bringing a wider buyer base to what is, of course, a multi-trillion dollar fixed income market. Joining us now, Yannick Malling, his public co-CEO and co-founder, and ultimately, it is a more illiquid asset class than equities. But you're wanting to try and bring some sort of liquidity ability to buy directly on your platform, why? Yeah, I mean, with this unprecedented um, rise we've seen in rates, uh, the retail community has grown a large appetite for yield, and with that, they've rediscovered the whole world of bonds. We've, we've seen that firsthand in public back in, in March of this year. 
we announced the ability to easily buy six months T-bills. Mm-hmm. And it since went, went on to become the most bought asset on the platform year to date. Now, I think when you look at the experience around buying corporate bonds, the full universe of treasuries and municipals, it's really still quite antiquated, I would say. I mean, the last time rates were this high was literally before the iPhone. And so they're sort of old, it's a little clunky, they're high minimums, they're difficult to use. And what we're announcing today is that we're sort of building a modern alternative for fixed income to really bring the experience of finding, evaluating, and investing in bonds into the 21st century. Tell us what technology is necessary to bring it into the 21st century. I mean, the reason you're able to bring this is because of your own sort of way in which your platform is using Apex, for example. Mm -hmm. What are some of the difficulties of providing such optionality to your users? It's interesting. So back in 2019, we, uh, I believe, were the first to launch uh, fractional stocks, like the ability to actually buy slices of shares. And it really works in a very similar way here. And we also, uh, Apex is also our partner on the stocks business. And so... After we saw the huge take up of our of our T-Build product, you know, we reached out to them and, and we partnered on building this kind of solution, whereas obviously we're the broker dealer, there's sort of more infrastructure and pipes and regulatory reporting and so forth. But it really works in a very similar way in that the liquidity around buying even like these fractions, if it comes out of inventory, is actually much better than if you have to go to the market every time. And obviously the bond market is a little bit different than the equities markets in terms of how the liquidity demand works. And so um, one could argue that it's um, potentially even more interesting for the bond market than it might be for the equities market. Well, come back, tell us whether or not this outstrips the demand that you've seen for the T-bills. Thank you very much and for your patience throughout, of course, the banking hearing that we were sat through. Yannick Malling there, public co-CEO and co-founder on that product launch. Meanwhile, sticking with the theme of maybe more the artificial intelligence questioning that was going on at the banking hearing, AI is dominating the tech news flow today, AMD in particular. They're holding their advancing AI event today where it will flesh out its strategy for its high-power AI accelerator. It's the MI300X. Ed? You're standing by on the ground ahead of the event, ahead of an interview with Lisa Sue, the CEO of AMD. And well, what, what's the anticipation? What are we really going to be hearing from her about the excitement for the product? Yeah, look, it's really about the battleground for the market for AI accelerators, those high-powered GPUs that go into data centers and are right now training large language models or foundation models later when those models are developed, powering the inference side of generative AI tools. That market has an incumbent, NVIDIA and the H100. And this is really a side-by-side comparison, NVIDIA's H100 versus the MI300X. The technological advantage that MI300X has is that it has HBM3, the latest generation of high bandwidth memory. That is a technology that's not going into NVIDIA products until the second quarter when they come to market with H200, but they still have that market incumbent title. There's a lot of optimism and hype around this because it's a big potential addressable market that analysts think that AMD can take some share in. And analysts not prepping themselves for any updates on the financials, but certainly about the specifics of this particular product launch. We cannot wait, Ed, for your interview a little bit later. Make sure you tune in live to Ed sit down with the AMD CEO, Lisa Sue. Thanks, Ed. Sweet to you later. Meanwhile, look, Apple seeking to reverse a decline in Mac and iPad sales, preparing several new models and upgrades early next year. Of course, he's behind the scoop, Mark Gurman, joining us now to discuss and bring us the latest. What, they're planning new iPad Air, iPad Pro, MacBook Air models as well? 
Yeah, Caroline, thank you so much for having me. Yes, we have a bunch of new iPads and Macs coming out in the coming months. These releases are likely to, have in, to happen in the March time frame, so in the spring, just a few months from now, uh, a little early on the Apple t- typical product calendar. So there's a few things happening here. On the iPad side, there's going to be a new strategy, bigger displays at lower prices. So there's going to be two new iPad Air models. These are going to have the M2 chip that came to the iPad Pro at the end of last year, and you're going to get a 12.9-inch screen for the first time on a cheaper iPad. So potentially spending maybe five to $700 less to get that almost 13-inch display, a laptop-sized screen on an iPad. And then at the high end, new iPad Pros with OLED screens, new designs, and new external keyboards that make the iPad Pros function more like laptops. And then speaking of laptops, new MacBook Airs coming in the spring, new 13-inch and 15-inch models. So the MacBook Air updated for the first time on the 13-inch size uh, after a year and a half, the 15-inch model being updated about after nine months, and the big change there, moving from the M2 chip to the M3 chip that came to the MacBook Pro and the iMac in October. Chips, the driving force of our conversation so far today, Mark. I'm interested, though, regulations going to be front and center for, for us throughout the show. I'm interested as to what's happening over in the EU. Apple, it seems, is managing to perhaps to get a carve-out for its iMessaging. Yeah, what we reported uh, earlier this morning, our colleagues in Europe, is that there is a carve-out in the Digital Markets Act where Apple is not going to have to make iMessage interoperable as part of these new regulations. This is an overhaul to how iPhones and iPads will function uh, in Europe. But this is super interesting because because just a couple of weeks ago, Apple announced it's going to support RCS, or Rich Communication Services. This is a Google-sponsored or something led by Google, promoted by Google, that allows iMessage to text message, or allows different phones, iPhones and Android phones, to text message on a single protocol or network. Apple's adding that, essentially making iMessage interoperable, and it really shows that Apple made the right move here. They got ahead of the Digital Markets Act, and now Europe is letting them off easy on messaging. The blue versus the green, Mark Gurman. Thanks so much when it comes to all things Apple. Meanwhile, let's talk a little bit more about regulation in the European Union more broadly, particularly when it comes to AI. Remember, they are racing, as of today, to reach a deal on the world's first major set of AI rules. Representatives are meeting to try and hammer out what's the EU's AI Act. It's actually the first was proposed all the way back in 2021, but boy, has the technology changed beneath their feet. Bloomberg's Gillian Deutsch joining us now to really try and see whether or not we'll get any sort of agreement as of today, because past it, it starts to get difficult, right? Absolutely. You know, this is a really big night and possibly a very, very late night here in Brussels as we see negotiators come together and try to finalize this AI Act, which, as you said, Caroline, has been in the works since 2021. Um, while this technology has been moving so fast, regulators are trying to keep up, um, and the debate around generative AI in particular has really thrown the conversation into disarray. Today was supposed to be the day that they walk out and easily have some kind of deal, but we're not actually sure if they will come out with one. Uh, we have lots of EU countries here who are worried about overregulation, possibly killing off domestic competitors to open AI. And then you also have lawmakers who say this technology is just too powerful, too risky to not put clear guardrails around. Well, we're going to be having lots of conversation about that similar sort of discussion happening over in Capitol Hill as well. Really, the regulation front and center, Gillian Deutsch, thank you so much. We'll see whether we get a deal later. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. 
Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's talk about venture capital right now. Shine a spotlight on it, as we do every day. And America's Frontier Fund, or AFF, has started to make some of its first startup investments through a new VC firm. AFF, which is backed by like Sir Peter Thiel, Eric Schmidt, and others, is a non-profit investment platform focused on tech breakthroughs. It deems to be in the national interest. Now, the non-profit sponsors VC firms as part of a broader mission to boost tech innovation in the United States. One of those is Roadrunner Venture Studios. Now, Roadrunner, co-founder, president, Adam Hammer joins us now for more on how you are looking to allocate money to disruptive research. You're bringing on board what your first three companies to join the studio to not only get money, which I think you've raised not only from New Mexico in particular, but you're also looking at basically handholding them through their growth, right? That's right, Caroline. So we're on a mission to partner with brilliant scientists, innovators, and entrepreneurs to build new disruptive companies in America for America. And to your point, what's unique about our model is we're not only providing capital, we're providing lab space, we're providing product management, talent resources, and we're going to make sure that every company we build is mapped to a first customer. Let's talk about those first customers. Let's think about the commercialization of these three companies. You've got Hydrosonics, you've got Enadis, so you've got clean tech, you've got biotech, you've also got manufacturing with Fab AI. How, how soon do you think these companies will find customer product market fit? So we're on a pathway to make sure that each of these companies have a first customer within the next year. We've built a proprietary method of commercialization here at Roadrunner. We have key partners both in government and in the private sector that we work closely with to ask, what are your hardest problems and how can we be building products and companies to solve those? What's so interesting is not only your model, but where you're based and how you're raising the money. You want this studio concept to go outside of New Mexico, right? Where else would you look? Who have you been having discussions with? That's right, Caroline. So yes, this movement starts in New Mexico, but it certainly won't end here. We're really privileged to be part of this long tapestry of innovation and history here in New Mexico and building upon it. But we're headed national next. So looking at places like New Jersey and North Dakota and Florida and Tulsa and Texas and taking this to different regions and in other areas where we feel like there's so many untapped resources that we can come in, build companies for those local communities and make sure that they have that disruptive potential that's important for American competitiveness. What's interesting is, of course, we named some of the big tech players who are behind the non-profit side of AFF. I'm thinking Eric Schmidt, Peter Thiel. Of course, this is a for-profit element. Have you spoken to them about some of these allocations, about the companies that you're going to be backing? 
Well, we certainly have a lot of supporters. Eric, of course, is a, is a friend and mentor whom I used to work for. But what we try to do is make sure that we have partners both in the venture capital community, again, also in government and in private sector. A lot of the technology we're building is critical tech. It's, again, really important for the United States to lead on these, both for national security and for American competitiveness. We're making sure to share those deals, share what we're building, shop it ahead of time with venture capital partners that are friends of ours, and make sure that each of these companies and founders are lined up for success. You, of course, previously ran a managing director, head of strategy over at Schmidt Futures. You brought on others that have worked at Schmidt Futures, those that have really deep tech knowledge, in particular at places like Amazon and other key companies. Who else are you bringing on? What expertise are you looking at for Roadrunner Venture Studios? It's a great question. We're, we're privileged to have a great seasoned team here, particularly folks that have commercialization experience, folks that know how to translate deep tech to actually building products, which is hard work. So a lot of product management experience, a lot of commercialization experience. Look, talent is core to building companies. Plenty of brilliant ideas die on the vine if they don't have a champion, if they don't have a CEO behind them. So we're building a talent infrastructure and have a head of talent that's in studio. What we'll be building with is continuing to bring in product managers, continuing to bring in scientists, and then folks that can help us really do the business development around deep tech. Roadrunner Venture Studios co-founder and president Adam Hammer, great to have some thoughts with you today. Thank you very much indeed. Meanwhile, well, let's go back to the world of AI because Google is opening access to Gemini in what is called its largest and most capable AI model. This is as a search giant, look, it's really trying to catch up here to companies like OpenAI with GPT-4. Now, this model has three versions, including one that can run directly on smartphones, for example, not just in the data centers. Meanwhile, the application of AI is something that tech leaders, civil society advocates, academics are all trying to get their hands around in terms of how you regulate it. And actually on Capitol Hill this week, they're all there and they're discussing AI's implications, for example, for national security and the potential threats posed by this rapidly advancing tools. Landing AI founder, CEO, Andrew Ng is joining us now. You, of course, an academic yourself, of course, Coursera co-founder as well. What did you make of the statements being made up on Capitol Hill with other leaders of Anthropic, for example, and where did it land for those that are trying to regulate it? What was your message today? Yeah, the meeting just ended 20 minutes ago. I'm actually speaking from you to you uh, from the uh, Senate uh, Russell House, where we're just debating this vigorously for two hours. I feel like there's a wide range of opinions, um, and I think that types about AI doomsday scenario are overblown. Uh, when I look at the common arguments for why AI could lead us to doom, it comes down to maybe three things. One is it could happen. We're not sure how, but it could happen, and you can't disprove a negative. You can't prove a negative. Um, second is appeal to authority. Some other people think it could happen, so let's worry about that. And then lastly, I think AI is a fantastic productivity tool. And so there's some arguments that if someone wants to do something malicious, that a productivity tool could help them. But I feel like we're still falling short in terms of quantifying what really are the realistic risks. And just because a productivity tool may help someone do something bad, you know, how should we think about regulating productivity tools? So you're almost trying to take out, draw out, rationalize some of the so-called hype around the doom of AI. But at the same time, how do you practically think the US, and indeed as we wait for the EU potentially to have some sort of initial deal on the EU AI Act, how will regulation take form? Do they have to regulate the foundational models or should they only regulate the application of AI? 
I think that was a great insight. Uh, one thing that's important to know about AI is it's a general purpose technology, meaning it's useful for so many different things, from copy editing to chatting with people, to answering questions, to customer support. And so regulating the core technology is very difficult. To me, regulating the core technology makes as much sense as regulating high-powered electric motors, which could be used for all sorts of things. But once you take that electric motor and turn it into a electric vehicle or a blender, you can think about what are the risks of the applications, the car or the blender. When you take this AI technology and you build it into a medical device, let's make sure the medical device is safe. You take AI and put it in a self-driving car, let's make sure the self-driving car is safe. But I worry that if we put onerous regulation on the technology rather than the regulation, then we're slowing down the hundreds of thousands, maybe even more beneficial applications that we could and should be using AI for. I mean, we turn to you because of the expertise that you not only have at Stanford University as an academic, but also as an innovator in and of yourself and funding innovations with Landing AI, for example. I'm interested in whether you think innovation thus far is being stifled by preempting regulation that isn't actually there because companies are having to get on advice. They are turning to consultants. They are trying to sort of ensure that they're building in the right way ahead of any real rules coming into place. Yeah, the AI uh, regulation space has been remarkable with a lot of fears um, about long-term harms, even extinction risks. And today, one of the things that was discussed was to ask not what, are your, what do you think are the risks of something leading to doom, but what are your hopes for AI? What do you think are the odds that AI will lead to a much better future for everyone? And a lot of us, uh, including me, gave high estimates. I think AI has, I don't know, a 70% chance of building, letting us build a much better world. And then uh, regulation to hold us back from that would be a problem. One of the things that was discussed a lot was the concern of regulatory capture. And I think that's actually one way to regulate, uh, to avoid favoring big tech companies while stifling innovation from startups. And that is to take a tiered risk approach to AI where we re regulate the more risky things. Yeah. And I think that if you're a social media company with 100 million users, well, that has higher disinformation risk than a small message board mm. with just 100 users. So let's regulate companies with a bigger reach more. That allows us to protect citizens while also avoiding regulatory capture. Andrew, who's just come out of that meeting, we thank you so much for spending some more time with us. Of course, you're Landing AI founder, your co-founder, Coursera, and of course, you're up on Capitol Hill at that AI forum. Andrew, we thank you. Meanwhile, well, that does it for a rather shortened edition of Bloomberg Technology. We race through a whole host of types of conversations around AI. Of course, do not miss that all-important interview that Ed has with Lisa Sue of AMD a little bit later. And don't miss our podcast. You can get it, of course, on Apple, Spotify, and iHeart. This is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.